Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you and welcome to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio. A women's show where we explore a variety of topics relating to women in religion and society. I'm your host, Similinam, and in today's episode, we're going to be looking into the issue of women's mental health. So, I was thinking the other day that time and time again, women are told to be weak in society. Now, don't get me wrong, things have definitely gotten better over time. But we're still not there yet. Many listening to this may have heard the common phrases, boys don't cry, or man up. Phrases I've heard several times growing up. The phrases imply that if a boy shows emotion, it's a sign of weakness. But that's expected of a girl, right? You never hear girls don't cry. So why are women portrayed to be weak? And where has this myth come from? Because of this social culture, I, and I'm sure many other teenage girls, grew up believing that to be strong is to be masculine, and to be masculine is to restrict your expression of emotions. However, this is clearly wrong. There are so many inspirational women out there who have shown great strength throughout their life, whilst also being able to express their own emotions and talk about their mental health. Someone I can think of right off the top of my head is Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a feminist and an author who wrote A Yellow Wallpaper, a short story influenced by the postnatal depression she had experienced, as well as the unhappy marriage she had been through. I was told by everyone outside my family that expressing your emotions is a sign of weakness. But after knowing how wrong this notion is, I want to know why and how this myth came about. Society has labelled a person who shows their emotions as a person who is weak, and women who tend to be more emotional have thus been labelled as weak. So where does this myth even come from? Why are people who are emotional seen to be weak? The popular answer I found to this was that a person, whether male or female, who expresses his or her emotions are not seen to be competent compared to someone who does not express his or her emotions. A study carried out in 2016 proves this. A group of participants were asked to look at images of people, some who were men and some who were women, and some of them were crying. The participants then were asked to judge whether the people in the pictures are competent or not. The study found that those who were crying in the pictures were judged to be far less competent than those who were not crying, and the loss of perceived competence was greater for men than for women. Interesting, right? The study clearly proves that there is a link between a person who expresses their emotions and whether they're seen to be competent or not. The study also shows how we've been socialised to that we expect women to be less competent than men and that they tend to be more emotional than men. Now, I and the many others listening to this can just sit here and say, that's clearly wrong. Speaking up about your mental health is a great sign of strength. You have the ability to be able to articulate your feelings well, whilst also having the confidence to reach out for help if need be. To be able to articulate your feelings shows that you are in control, thus showing you have great strength. However, the myth that if a person, let alone a woman, expresses her emotions is seen to be incompetent can take a long time to eradicate especially as it's very much embedded in society, and that's what we will focus on today. Before we start discussing about women's mental health, let me introduce our studio guests. 
Joining me to discuss the issue in more detail are Yasmin Mirza and Aini Bhatt. Yasmin has worked in the NHS for the last 20 years as a clinical psychologist and Aini is a primary school teacher and the philosophy for children lead across her school. Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you to both of you and welcome to Sisters on Air. Wa alaikum salam. Wa alaikum salam. In recent years, I've personally seen more and more people trying to debunk this myth. As a politics student, it was interesting to see Theresa May, our former Prime Minister, cry at her resignation speech at the doorsteps of 10 Downing Street. I remember feeling like people on Twitter and in the media are going to act so negatively towards her that they would label her as incompetent as Prime Minister just for simply crying, just like the 2016 experiment. And I was not wrong about that. The Mirror headlined, and I quote, Tories scramble to replace crying lady. However, the independent headlined, and I quote, Theresa May has finally done something good for women. For Theresa May to show her emotion so explicitly was so important. She went against all those things people had told her. To prove her worth and competence as Prime Minister, she should not show an ounce of emotion. But she did. She showed the world that being emotional when given such a big opportunity like leading a country is normal. But her crying does not necessarily make her incompetent at her job. If I can come to you first, Yasmin, one of the barriers to individuals seeking help for their mental health is this idea that it implies weakness and a lack of competence. So it's really important to eradicate this fallacy from social psyche. How do you think we can eradicate this myth? So as adult role models, we need to start by examining our beliefs about emotions and relationships and whether these beliefs align ourselves with our actions. So for example, do we suppress strong emotions such as compassion or sadness because we're afraid we'll appear weak? Or do we understand that emotions are just part of the human experience and that learning to work with them in a healthy way actually makes us stronger? Or do we allow ourselves to be vulnerable by sharing our innermost ideas and emotions with our friends and encourage them to do so with us? Or do we engage with people only at the surface out of fear of being hurt or betrayed? So I think the first step to eradicate the myth that emotions are a weakness is by reflecting on our own emotional and relational beliefs and challenges. And by doing so, we'll be better equipped to guide our children as they navigate the social and emotional nuances of growing up in a society that expects them to behave in a way that go against their natural capacities. However, this does not mean that expressing emotion is either adaptive and not expressing emotion is maladaptive. So this black and white view is not helpful to apply to such a complex concept. Um, And I think this is because it's important to take into account um, individual characteristics, um, self-esteem, feeling safe in a relationship and the social and cultural context which will influence the optimum or healthy way of regulating our emotions. So extremes in both, that is never sharing feelings or alternatively unrestrained expression of feelings can be as harmful as each other. Thank you for this. I think it's so important to eradicate a myth like this by first evaluating our own attitudes towards our emotions. Can I ask you the same question, Amy? 
Of course. Um, so like many things in society, I think this idea of being strong or what strength actually means, in particular mental resilience, um, is a social construct. Therefore, this is not something that is set in stone. And we really need to look at how this myth has been perpetuated in society. So as you already highlighted, Simor, how important it is for us to recognize how we can eradicate this myth in society. So whenever we explore a particular concept in a philosophical manner, it requires that critical reflection on its origins and the values that underpin our thoughts and beliefs in regard to how that value should be practiced in our lives. Now, as an educator, I believe that the philosophy of education reproduced by the social and political context is one of those main factors for p perpetuating this myth in terms of what being competent actually means. So in education, and whether it be primary, secondary or higher education, there's this relentless emphasis on IQ and quantifying students' abilities in the form of grades. This industrial model of education has this molding effect on um, on students' mindset and what learning and success looks like due to this fixation on developing the IQ without actually recognizing that it is the EQ or the emotional quotient that is a far more deciding factor in being successful and reaching one's goals. Daniel Goleman, an American psychologist and science journalist, brought this term emotional intelligence to educators' attention and he argued that IQ only contributes 20% to an individual's success, while the remaining 80% is down to self-management and interpersonal skills, which are key components of emotional intelligence. So I think we could actually do a whole show on what emotional intelligence actually looks like and how it can be developed, as it's such an interesting topic. But let's bring it back to your question. I would like to argue against those who believe that being aware of or articulating one's mental health issues shows a lack of competence. When self-awareness and self-regulation are two components of emotional intelligence that go hand in hand with each other and often one of the foci for leadership and management skills. We need actually a paradigm shift from this standardized education where we're preparing students to inevitably just become a part of the mechanized society. We need to ensure that our students are equipped with the right balance between academic skills and emotional intelligence. Sir Ken Robinson, the British author and advisor on education, also argued that the key to this transformation is not to standardize education, but to personalize it and recognize that human flourishing is not a mechanical process, it's an organic process. Another part of your question was in regard to strength, or rather lack of it, if individuals seek help for their mental health issues. So I think again, we need to look at where this concept of mental strength comes from and what are the societal norms. So we have often heard about toxic masculinity, and as our discussion today is mostly focused on women's mental health, I'll have to suffice with the statement that it is a societal expectation on how men need to behave in terms of being strong. But at the same time, there's also this expectation for women to behave a certain way, as you already said at the beginning. Women are perceived weak if they cry, and those in higher positions are then seen to be incompetent. Is this why we end up with women who are dubbed, for example, Iron Lady? Is it because they are aware of how the society perceives women in power? 
If they show emotions, they are perceived weak and incompetent, while on the other hand, a lack of articulation of those same emotions is seen as not having any emotions or feelings at all. I truly believe it all stems from a lack of emotional intelligence in society and our education system has a big hand to play in perpetuating this cycle. Definitely an interesting thought there. Thank you for that. Yasmin, can I now ask you how does expressing one's emotions and talking to someone about one's mental health help? Yes, I thought I'd uh, put a twist on my answer to this question and look at the risks of not expressing one's emotions. So there's a study by Harvard School of Public Health and the University of Rochester which showed people who bottled up their emotions increased their chance of premature death from all causes by more than 30%, with their risk of being diagnosed with cancer increasing by 70%. This is a staggering statistic showing the interrelationship between our mind and our bodies. So interestingly, it's not just your long-term health that can suffer if you express your negative emotions. There have also been numerous studies showing that when we regulate or ignore our emotions, we can experience short-term mental and physical reactions as well. So Victoria Tarrett, a clinical psychologist, says that by suppressing your emotions, whether it's anger, sadness, grief or frustration, can affect blood pressure, memory and self-esteem. Longer term, says Tarrett, there's an increased risk of diabetes and heart disease. And avoiding emotions can also lead to, I quote, lead to problems with memory, aggression, anxiety and depression. Unquote. So in addition, she found that by not acknowledging our emotions, we're actually making them stronger. This can lead to emotional outbursts, which is, a, which is your body's way of releasing pent-up emotion. It's useful to think about the reasons why people hide their emotions. So one reason may be linked to the subject of this report, where showing emotions can be associated with showing weakness, a vulnerability that arises from a fear of being judged negatively by others. Alternatively, people often hide their emotions to avoid getting hurt and to avoid conflict in an effort to protect one's relationship. This might be related to a lack of trust in your ability to handle conflict in a positive and productive way. If you grow up with messages that feelings aren't important, then it's likely that you learn to hide your feelings from a very early age. And then similarly, growing up with caregivers masking their own emotions can also reinforce the idea that you should do the same. So hiding emotions can prevent clear communication with people in your life. You might think you can hide your feelings fairly well, but people who know you usually recognise when something's bothering you. So insisting I'm fine and there's nothing wrong can confuse and frustrate them when the opposite is clearly true. If they know you aren't telling the truth, they might feel hurt by your lack of trust and begin losing trust in you. And if they do believe you, they might lose confidence in their ability to understand you or to decide that they don't know you as well as they thought. So eventually they could begin to question the strength of the relationship and in either scenario, the relationship you wanted to protect still ends up being damaged. So these consequences show the importance of learning to open up and learning to develop emotional intelligence to support one's mental health and relationships. Yes, well, I think with regards to this question, um, I really like your responses, Yasmin. I just wanted to also put a spin on this. Um, 
And we're going to look at the stage before we express our emotions, the stage where we are still developing this self-awareness and trying to recognize our emotions. So I'm talking about the stage where you might still be confused as you're experiencing two opposing emotions. For example, you might be happy about a particular achievement, but also feeling guilty or sorry for those who were not able to be successful. So obviously, this is a very sim simplified version, just to explain how the human mind and our emotions are far from simple. These opposing emotions are discussed in Brianna Wiest's book as she discusses self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviours. The one thing I have learned both from my professional experiences and my personal journey is how articulating your thoughts can support the recognition of how our thoughts feed our emotions and vice versa. Therefore, I truly believe that talking to someone about our emotions, especially when these are opposing in nature, can support the reflective process in order for us to recognize these values that underpin our emotions. I believe that this is extremely important so that we can recognize how these values are underpinning certain feelings. It can be extremely helpful to talk to an unbiased professional who has a deeper understanding of mental health issues, as our family members and friends may not be able to give us this neutral perspective. This is something that has also been used in professional contexts when coaching takes place. The one reason why coaching has uh, been extremely successful is its holistic approach to both the individual and their struggles. It allows the coachee that is a personal receiving coaching to recognize their full context and facilitates a regaining of the control by looking at the resources and approaches at hand. Being able to talk from a personal perspective to an unbiased coach allows them to draw upon their own knowledge and skills to find solutions, which can often be very empowering for the individual. This is why I truly believe that talking to someone about your emotions can have an empowering effect. But we need to remember that not everyone will be able to be this skillful coach. Therefore, it's important to choose your coach carefully, which means that we have to make informed decisions in terms of who we entrust with our thoughts and emotions, as they are very precious. Great responses from both of you. Expressing your emotions helps so much more than people think it does. Now, following on from that, we have the influence of social media. I remember I installed Instagram last year. I'm definitely quite new to the Instagram game as I've been so hesitant to install it because of the negative impact Instagram as well as other social media sites have had on my family and friends, in particular relating to body image. 4.8 billion people in the world are active on social media. That's half of the world. Let that sink in. 4.8 billion people can access social media 24-7 where they compare how they look to those on the internet. So it's no shock that social media has changed the way we look at ourselves. A British social attitude survey found that only 63% of women aged 18 to 34 were satisfied with their own appearance and that is even lower for women aged 35 to 49. Social media has exposed us to unrealistic beauty standards and has made many people believe that what they see on the internet, young, thin, acne-free individuals with hourglass figures, are the blueprint for beauty or even normalcy. Meanwhile, 
They're hiding behind a countless number of filters that make them look airbrushed, slimmer and toned. This not only leads to skewed ideas of what people's bodies actually look like in real life, but the increasing amounts of access and exposure to social media has made many people compare their own bodies to others, fueling body image anxiety. And as social media is accessible 24-7, this cycle of constantly judging ourselves to other virtual beings never stops. We tend to judge ourselves through snapshots of other people's lives whom we've never met before. It's also important to point out that it's not just Instagram. A 2014 study found that Facebook also affected our views on our body. In particular, it triggered body image anxiety among adolescent girls. However, body image anxiety is not triggered by how much adolescent girls spend on Facebook, Rather, it's about the time they have allocated to photo activity. This exposure can lead to weight dissatisfaction and drive for thinness. This study could also explain why Instagram is the main social media site to fuel body image anxiety, as the whole concept of Instagram is to share and post photos. So, a lot to think about and reflect over. These negative consequences of social media have only gotten worse amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. The number of lockdowns many countries faced meant that many people may have gained weight. The closure of workplaces and gyms led to people working 18 plus hour days, feeling as though there was no end to their working day, leading them very little time and energy to exercise. The impact of the pandemic in combination with social media only exemplify the problem with body image, as the pandemic led us to be trapped at our home with constant access to social media, leading to anxieties about our own bodies increasing. I remember the first lockdown where it became a trend to work out home, and I remember joining in the fun at the start, but ended up decreasing how much I worked out. I recall feeling really rubbish about it because it was going so well at first and I was seeing so many people on social media continuously working out when I just did not have the motivation to work out. So Yasmin, how has the pandemic affected the mental health of the public in general and women in particular and how has being on social media intensified negative mental health? So much has been written on the effects of the pandemic on the mental health of particularly mothers. Um, So there was an increase in unplanned pregnancies due to the multiple barriers to, for example, accessing contraception, uh, the decreased medical office hours, avoidance going to the medical centre to obtain prescriptions or cancellation of coil fittings. And on the other hand, many couples face a difficult decision of whether to try and conceive or to postpone their pregnancy. The postponement of childbearing may be especially stressful for women who've had to pause infertility treatments or those nearing the end of their reproductive years with reduced access to assisted reproductive technology. There were numerous pregnancy concerns related to the fears of transmission of COVID-19 to the foetus and also an increased vulnerability of contracting the virus and also complications in pregnancy and access to prenatal care. So there were numerous accounts of mothers giving birth denied their birth partner being present. During the pandemic, some women opted to miscarry at home due to wanting to reduce the risk of COVID-19 exposure in medical settings. And so experience such a trauma at home in more isolation with less available support 
um, obviously increases the risk of mental health problems. We know that social support is strongly protective against postnatal depression. So studies have shown that the degree of social uh, support significantly and inversely correlates with postnatal depressive symptom severity. So effective postnatal social support, which can include reliance on family, friends, hired professional help, or um, to get some relief from added responsibilities while dealing with a whole range of things like hormonal changes, um, sleep deprivation, um, adjustments in the family dynamic and distribution of roles, was well, they were all profoundly affected during the pandemic lockdown and uh, particularly because of the social restrictions. Many postpartum mothers and their partners were also dealing with the added tasks such as childcare if there were other children in the home. And since schools had closed in many places for an indefinite period or the family had chosen to keep them at home uh, due to the fears of contamination. And also elderly grandparents were unable to assist or even visit due to the heightened age-related COVID risk. And then there's financial hardship is another significant risk factor for mental health problems in addition to the increase of the unemployment rates. School closures resulted in a heavy load of parental stress, particularly for mothers who typically carry the bulk of childcare and elder care in most parts of the world. So many parents reported feeling anxious, agitated, fearful or depressed due to the limited financial and social resources and a global sense of unpredictability and loss of control from the juggle between homeschooling and remote work, all combined with limited outsourced help. And as the world was told to stay at home in order to ensure safety, for many people, home represents the least safe option. These are the victims of intimate partner violence, usually women, and they had greater exposure to perpetrators of violence during a time of unprecedented psychological and economic stress and with reduced access to safe havens. So in some cases, violence may even have developed in homes where it had not been an issue before. So these are serious risk factors for mental health problems for mothers as a result of the pandemic. And we'll only know the full extent of these consequences as we come out of the pandemic and several years later. So how do we fix this problem? In 2017, France introduced new legislation which requires that any digitally altered photos or models must be labelled as being digitally altered. However, does that really go far enough? We hear time and time again that social media companies have policies in place to protect us from having a skewed idea of reality. But people's real life experiences on social media does not line up with social media companies' policies, where this content is actually being promoted. But it's also important to point out that the core of the problem is still there. Despite labels being created, making sure that people are aware that a set of photos have been digitally altered, the question of why is still there. Why have these photos been altered? It's because in society, we still have an ideal body standard to aspire to. So isn't that the root problem, the thing we need to get rid of first? Yasmin, how do you think we can prevent body image anxiety among anyone? Are social media companies doing enough? Or do we tackle the biggest problem first, society standards? So a YouGov study in 2019 highlighted that one in five adults felt shame. A third felt down or low. 
and 19% felt disgusted about their body image in the year before. So, clearly as a result of these shocking statistics, a need was identified to make policy recommendations to promote and support the right that everyone has a right to feel comfortable in their own bodies and to support good mental health and well-being in relation to our bodies. So, the Online Harms White Paper recommends improved practice on how social media platforms promoting unhealthy imaging, which should be enforced by a new independent regulator. And the paper also recommends that the Advertising Standards Authority enforces advertising. So, for example, cosmetic surgery companies and weight loss products and services, they must abide by its codes. And then other recommendations include social media companies should sign um, up to the Be Real campaign's body image pledge and investigate new ways of using their platforms to promote positive body image and to ensure that the diversity of body types is presented positively to their users. And also media companies should have clear systems for users to report bullying and discrimination and targets for actions to be taken. Public health and education approaches to body image are vital and suggestions include training for frontline health practitioners and the early years child care workforce which should include information about how parents and carers can, from a very early age, positively influence their children's feelings about their bodies through their behaviours and attitudes. And then public um, campaigns on nutrition and obesity should avoid the potential to create stigma and indirectly contribute to um, appearance-based bullying. They should focus on healthy eating and exercise for all members of the population, regardless of weight. And then finally, a co-produced body image and media literacy toolkit should be a compulsory element of what children learn in schools. And this should include the development of a charter for achieving a healthy and positive body image. And then on an individual level, we can all develop awareness of the ways in which we speak about our own and other people's bodies in casual conversations with our friends and family. And at home, parents and carers can lead by example by modelling positive behaviour around body image, um, eating healthily and of course staying active. Definitely. I think we can all agree about how much social media affects our mental health negatively. And so we should really prioritise it. The head of the Indian Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, has guided that, and I quote, If you know about the negative usage of social media, then you should avoid such usage. It's a matter of temptation. A person is easy tempted, whereby they open a link and they become interested, and then they open up another link, and then another, and so forth. The user doesn't think of the negative impact it is having upon them, so the first time that you see something on social media that can potentially have a negative impact on you or others, immediately shut it down, end quote. Following on from that, are there any aspects of social media that have had a positive impact on your mental health? And how do you try and find the balance of spending time on those positive aspects of social media whilst also trying to take care of your mental health? Yeah, I think... First of all, we need to realise that social media is, of course, a communication tool, a tool for, as you already said, companies, celebrities, individuals to communicate a particular message. And we all know that communication has changed significantly over the years, especially during national lockdown. 
as we all know, people were, and some still are, relying heavily on social media to, to, to communicate with one another due to lockdown rules. Furthermore, um, home learning or distance learning required higher levels of internet access. And I truly believe that during lockdown, being able to still communicate with our loved ones and accessing learning allowed a lot of individuals to get through those really difficult days without any face-to-face human contact. However, just like everything else in life, this also had a negative side to it. So as we were accessing more information on the internet, our data and our preferences are stored. And this is how we get from one link to another to another, as you already said. This is why when browsing the internet, it is a good idea to have this level of maturity to understand which link is merely a clickbait and maybe even harmful for our mental health. However, not all social media is harmful and we need to seek out those who support our mental health while enriching us with knowledge. So when we build a network of contacts, it is important to be aware of this. We are lucky that the majority of the social media platforms allow us to block those people who are harming our mental health. And my view, my personal view, is to block if and when needed. There are lots of people known as keyboard warriors, and it's pointless to engage in a heated argument with those people online. Although I would like to add that I have been able to make some really positive connections with people on Twitter who I have shared my beliefs with so they may learn about my faith and I also had the opportunity to learn about theirs. So in short, we can use social media to reproduce this distorted image of society or we can draw upon those those same technologies to build a network that promotes acceptance rather than tolerance. Thank you for that advice. I particularly love the advice about blocking people if need be. We're going to take a short break now, but please stay tuned as we continue our discussion into mental health and women and explore it in the context of motherhood. Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Musroor Ahmad has said, I have said on many occasions publicly that today's trends are not here to guide religion, Rather, the religion taught by Allah the Almighty is here to guide mankind forever. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Peace be on you and welcome back to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio, where we have been talking about mental health of women in particular. Following on from what we were discussing before the break, let's talk about motherhood. Now, I'm not a mother, but I've seen the sheer amount of emotional labour my mum has gone through over several years by taking care of the needs of her children, and it's a massive burden. As a mother, you have your own problems to deal with as well as your children's, and that can be a lot. The transition to parenthood can be a difficult one, where around 9-21% to of women experience depression and slash or anxiety at this time. This statistic gets higher if mothers have little social support 
a low income, is a single parent, or they have a poor relationship with their partner. This was found to be true because the more of an emotional support system mothers have, the less mothers have on their shoulders, thus compromising their mental health less. If a mother has low income, this can heighten the burden she may have. However, Islam beautifully emphasizes that this should not be a burden. In the Holy Quran, in chapter 17, verse 32, it says, and I quote, Kill not your children for fear of poverty. It is we who provide for them and for you. End quote. For Muslims, this verse clearly emphasizes that the emotional burden mothers go through that may be due to parents having low income should not be a worry. It is an assurance that Allah will provide for you and your children. It's also very important to note that motherhood at any stage can be an emotional burden. It may just be heightened for some mothers at the start of their pregnancy or when they have just given birth. And that's where postnatal depression comes in. Mental health of mothers can be severely damaged during their pregnancy or just when they have given birth. According to the NHS, postnatal depression is a type of depression that many parents experience after having a baby. It's a common problem as 1 in 10 women within a year of giving birth are affected. Postnatal depression typically arises from the combination of hormonal changes, psychological adjustment to motherhood and fatigue. Anxiety about taking care of your children in the future may be heightened within the first week after giving birth. Furthermore, just like other types of depression or any other mental health problem, the process of postnatal depression is gradual. Many people who do end up suffering from depression don't realise they're depressed until they're not. It's a gradual process and does not happen suddenly. Due to this gradual process, postnatal depression can be missed and not detected, so mothers may not be given the help they need as soon as possible. In a meeting with Wakfinor girls from the UK, here I should explain that the Wakfinor scheme in the Amdi Muslim community is for parents to dedicate their children for the propagation of Islam before their birth. So the head of the Amdi Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masul Ahmed, spoke to them and emphasised that, and I quote, mental health issues such as depression are an illness like any other, and so they should be diagnosed and treated properly. No one should make fun of those suffering or take it lightly. End quote. Now, this very much applies to postnatal depression. The biggest myth surrounding this type of depression is that it's not as serious as other types of depression and so can be taken lightly, whereas that's completely wrong. Postnatal depression is as harmful as other types of depression and so should not be taken lightly at all. So, we've established that being a mother definitely takes a toll on many women. How has becoming a mother impacted you, Yasmin? So my first response to this question is that the impact of motherhood is so far-reaching that I wasn't quite sure of where I could even start to answer this question. It then got me thinking that I wonder what is written about the transition to motherhood to see if I could find a word that could encapsulate this extraordinary event. So I googled this. And in my joy, I found a word that I have never come across before. And that word is matricense, which was invented by an anthropologist, Dana Raphael, in the 1970s. 
Now, I consider myself to be quite well-read, so why hadn't I come across this concept before? And what does it mean? Now, it's interesting that this word matrescence sounds a little similar to adolescence, and that's no coincidence, as just as adolescence describes a teenager's passage into adulthood, matrescence describes a woman's transition into motherhood and all the psychological and physical change that comes with it. So, like adolescence, matrescence is a time of healthy change and a multifaceted transition not without ambivalence or angst. And it's not just covering the period after a baby is born. It begins when a woman is trying to conceive, right through to pregnancy, the postpartum stage, and where the mother expands her family with other babies. And then, interestingly, the term matrescence is Latin for I became a mother. So let's go back to the question of the impact of motherhood. Um, a clinical psychologist, Dr. Aurelie Athen, talks about the transition into motherhood being marked by an acceleration of changes in multiple domains for a woman. So firstly, there's a physical domain where there is the recovery from the birth, weight changes, there's hormonal changes, there's nutrient depletion, and of course, there's the effects of chronic sleep deprivation and stress. And then there's the psychological domain where Dr. Athen describes an identity disintegration followed by reorientation. So there's a whole shift in your perspective of your new identity, um, grappling with the myths and fantasies about what your previous expectations um, were about motherhood, perhaps the Disney version, and the new messy reality dealing with both ambivalence, frustration, despair, all mixed up with joy and excitement. And the psychological domain also includes grappling with a lack of autonomy and freedom and learning on the job without a manual. And then we've got the social domain, which includes the societal norms, values and expectations of mothers and what is defined as a good mother versus a bad mother and dealing with the conflicting information about how to manage a baby's needs. Then there's social media influences, uh, creating unrealistic expectations. There's also changes within intimate relationships and changing friendships and family dynamics. So it may include a re-evaluation of one's childhood and a forgiveness of our own caretakers. And it can also include gains in social status or even a loss of professional status. And then lastly, we can look at the spiritual domain of a new sense of purpose and meaning to life. Um, the development of spiritual values such as mindfulness, compassion and humility. And then the experience of suffering that goes hand in hand with the complex role of a mother. And this can include a recommitment to faith and increased uh, religious practice also. So I think this term matrescence, which should be widely, more widely recognised, beautifully describes the complexity of my personal experience of becoming a mother. I love how you describe motherhood as a transition. There's going to be ups and downs. Due to that, what advice would you give to mothers to help with their mental health? Amy, if I can come to you first. First of all, Yasmin, that was that was an amazing answer. I've never heard that word before. No and way. Why have we heard of this word? And I definitely, I think, need to introduce this to the children in my class as well. And um, But yeah, just to come back to your answer, to your question, sorry. 
I think mothers are often seen as loving and supportive, which is that societal expectation. However, when it comes to their own mental health, it we normally forget that you cannot pour from an empty cup. So one of the most concise but effective advice that I had ever received was to talk to yourself in the same manner that you would talk to your children. Often we limit our love to our children and forget that self-love is not necessarily a selfish trait. In fact, there is a hadith, a saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be on him, that a person's self or nafs, as it is called in Arabic, also has rights that need to be fulfilled. Also, we need to understand that as mothers, we are setting an example for our children on how to look after our mental health. Therefore, it is important for mothers to share the self-regulation techniques in order for the children to validate their own emotions. We need to understand that as mothers, we are modeling both verbal and non-verbal behaviors. So if a child thinks that their mother is never upset or angry, they really will struggle to recognize appropriate strategies to deal with anger or frustration when they will experience those emotions. So I really think that, you know, this feeds this problematic construct of toxic positivity. Now, I know the term toxic positivity sounds like an oxymoron. However, we need to recognize that even the most well-intended positive comments can become toxic when we enforce our own positivity on a particular individual without understanding their context. And I often find that people who are emotionally intelligent and have actually developed a higher level of self-awareness will often be perceived as emotional or sensitive. We need to remember that each emotion has its roots. As Molana Rumi said, these pains you feel are messengers. Listen to them. So listening to these message messages and recognition of those emotions that are hurtful can actually be a very difficult experience in itself. However, these emotions are either ignored or drowned out with the toxic sprinkles of toxic positivity. These can often be well intended, as already said, but they may sound like, oh, chin up, keep calm. You've always been so strong. I'm sure you'll get through this as well. So does being strong mean that you have never shed a tear or struggled with an internal conflict? Well, as I said earlier, this myth needs to be eradicated by raising self-awareness and developing skills of critical self-reflection. This requires a deeper exploration of one's values and where they originate from, especially when it comes to those values that are rooted in religion as they are often misinterpreted and used to drown out one's internal voice. So not only do we need to develop higher levels of self-awareness to be able to recognize our own emotions, we should also explore Islam and its teachings in terms of life's trials. We read in the Holy Quran, and I quote, And we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits, but give glad tidings to the patient. Unquote. This reminds the believers that trials are part of life. But Allah does not leave those who put their trust in him, as he reassures with the following verse, and I quote, Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity, unquote. It's so important to be kind to yourself, just like you're kind to your children. Thank you for that. And Yasmin, your views on this? 
I want to come back to my word that I've discovered, matricense. Uh, this is my new passion and I really want to get it out there with the general population. So we need to really normalise matricense, is transition to motherhood. We need to understand that discomfort is not the same as disease. And we need to encourage an open dialogue about how the transition into parenthood can feel. So destigmatizing the tougher feelings connected to becoming a mother can only be achieved if we shed the myths, the stereotypes and the unrealistic standards of motherhood to gently draw mothers away from guilt and shame and towards a more compassionate place of acceptance. So practicing self-compassion, I think um, we can bring in here because it um, includes putting into perspective some of the challenges of the system of modern motherhood. So there, there really should be a general recognition that caring for a baby used to be more, much more of a communal effort where mothers were not, own, not so isolated and overwhelmed and then suddenly all now all the burdens of caretaking fall on the parents, particularly the mother, rather than this previous extended network. So with this lack of support and a change in society, is it no wonder that mothers struggle with a whole range of understandable and normal emotions that affect their mental health? Social science research shows that humans generally have a hard time feeling compassionate for someone we think is responsible for their own problems. So it was your choice to have a baby, so don't complain. Society may offer less empathy and kindness as well as the parent themselves not being able to show self-compassion as they experience this intense and exacerbated responsibility for being autonomous parents and to get it right with no reliance on others. This can then lead to a downward spiral of harsh self-talk, feelings of failure associated with the struggle of motherhood and low self-worth. And here we can introduce um, a really leading expert on self-compassion. Her name's Christine Neff. And she writes that compassion, self-compassion entails three components. So first, self-compassion, it requires self-kindness, that we be gentle and understanding with ourselves rather than harshly critical and judgmental. Secondly, it requires recognition of our common humanity, so feeling connected with others in the experience of life, rather than feeling isolated and alienated by our own suffering. And an understanding that all mothers experience the ups and downs of matricense, and there is common suffering with the experience of motherhood. And then lastly, it requires mindfulness, that we hold our experience in a balanced awareness rather than ignoring our pain or exaggerating it. So really by normalising and accepting both the joys and the suffering of motherhood, we are in a better position to know what we need to move through our experience. Self-care is critical to managing a mother's mental health. And so creating adequate time and a ritualized space for a new mother, particularly those 40 days post-birth, where a new mother um, ideally should receive nurturing and pampering and nourishment and support, which allows for the rest and healing and emotional judgment of a new mother. This suggestion of a modern version of a traditional postnatal confinement can help mothers more securely navigate the roller coaster of matricense. Self-care matters, and as a mother spends most of her day and night giving to another human, it's important to give back to herself too, as we've spoken about um, earlier. So, of course, exactly how will look different from person to person, but honing in on the activities that help her feel her best.
So it could be a short yoga class, a walk around the block, a conversation with a good friend or a leisurely bath. It's a key part of easing into the transition of motherhood. I totally agree. Having time to yourself is so important, especially as a mother. Now, what more can we do to help mothers who suffer through postnatal depression? So if we refer back to the term matricense and the fact that this term is not out there in the popular culture of conversation, there is a risk that matricense can get confused with a separate condition that is postnatal depression. So, as you said before, 10 to 15% of women in the UK suffer with postnatal depression. And it's important that we first describe what is postnatal depression and expand a, a little bit on your previous definition. We know that baby blues are common and they're normal up to two weeks after giving birth. However, if after two weeks a mother is describing um, a persistent feeling of sadness, a lack of enjoyment and loss of interest in the wider world, it could be um, a lack of energy and feeling tired all the time, Uh, it could be trouble sleeping at night and then feeling sleepy during the day, Um, difficulty bonding with the baby, withdrawing contact from other people, uh, problems concentrating and making condition uh, decisions, sorry, and experiencing frightening thoughts such as harming the baby. These are all signs that a woman is likely to be suffering from postnatal depression. So it's vital that both the mother and the father first educate themselves about the signs of potential postnatal depression as part of their prenatal learning. It's important uh, for key adults in the mother's life to encourage the mother to talk about their feelings and accept that their feelings are genuine. It's crucial to try and understand the mother's point of view without trivialising them by telling them to snap out of it or get over it. We all need to take responsibility for changing the narrative around both the positive and negative experiences of motherhood and normalising the fact that discomfort and uncomfortable emotions are a natural experience in the transition to motherhood. So ambivalence, for example, is a natural emotion. I think increasing confidence conversation to reduce shame and stigma around any negative emotion is important and also it's important to offer patience to the mother as well as encouragement and then of course practical support is also hugely important so maybe limiting visitors if the mother doesn't feel like socializing um, offering uh, help around the house babysitting other children in the family providing healthy meals Uh, maybe offering to give the mother a break from the baby, check in with the mother to ask them what support they would like. Um, Would they like someone else to feed, bathe or change the baby? Or maybe just offer to go for a walk around the block. And then it's really important to encourage the mother to get help and treatment that she might need. So uh, you might want to think about booking an appointment with their GP and offering to go with them. Um, A mother may be offered self-help groups or courses, psychological therapy or antidepressants are safe to take if the mother is breastfeeding. I really think there's no valid reason why a mother in the 21st century has to suffer in silence with postnatal depression. But there is much work to be done to eradicate the stigma and change the narrative to include both the positive and negative aspects of mothering. Thank you for some amazing advice. Before ending this show, I would like to ask all of you if you would like to share how you take care of your mental health. Annie, can I come to you first? 
Yes. So I think what I've recognized that I'm often going through turbulent times when I'm experiencing two opposing emotions. Um, so in order to allow myself to recognize the emotions, I choose to do something that supports the ref reflective process. So um, as I was telling Yasmin earlier, this includes going on long forest walks, hiking, writing or art. So in terms of art, uh, what I've also found that Arabic calligraphy has allowed me to reflect on my emotions by drawing upon the Quranic verses. And I think the deeply reassuring messages within the Quran support my mental health as it allows me to put my trust in Allah, while it also gives me some much needed time away from the daily grind of things. And I think we often forget that our most valuable resource is our health and we need to change this perception that self-care is selfish. Also, lockdown has allowed me to recognize my priorities. So it doesn't matter how busy work might be, but nothing is more important than your health, which includes emotional and mental health. That's a great note to end our show on. This show has just given us a slim exposure to the world of women's mental health, and there can definitely be more discussions in the future about this. For those who have tuned in today, thank you. I want to end with a quote from the head of the Amdi Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, who has on multiple occasions emphasized the importance of taking care of your mental health and taking care of those who need help. His Holiness said, and I quote, those suffering should be taken to a psychiatrist by their relatives and should be treated properly and full efforts should be made to rid them of their pain. End quote. So let this be a reminder to take care of your mental health today, whether that's talking to someone, writing your problems down or going for a walk. I've been your host, Simil Nam. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio. Thank you once again to our studio guests, Yasmin and Amy. Your thoughts and your views have been very insightful. Please join us again next time for more discussions on matters relating to women in religion and society. You have been listening to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio, produced by Shamin Bhatt. Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you. <laughs>